Hello and welcome to a special joint podcast of RFF's Resources Radio. And Energy 360 from the CSIS Energy Program. I'm Lisa Highland. And I'm Daniel Ramey. Today, I team up with CSIS's Sarah Ladislaw to interview RFF fellow, Dr. Mark Hafstedt, director of RFF's Carbon Pricing Initiative. Sarah and Daniel will ask Mark about a raft of recent legislative proposals in the U.S. Congress to price greenhouse gas emissions. We'll talk about major design elements of these bills, including the proposed carbon price, how revenues are used, and how border adjustments can help protect U.S. manufacturers. They'll also talk about the political viability of these different proposals, including which policy elements might help build support for a carbon price, and whether other policy approaches, like a clean energy standard, stand more of a chance in today's political environment. So stay with us for this special episode of Resources Radio and Energy 360. Okay, Mark Hafstead from Resources for the Future. Uh, You're our special guest today, and today's a special day because we're co-hosting today's podcast between Resources for the Future and CSIS, Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, with Sarah Ladislaw. So um, hi, Sarah, and hi, Mark. Thanks so much to both of you for, uh, for being on the show today. Hey, Daniel. Uh, It's nice to be here. And thanks, Mark, for doing this. Uh, We're really pleased to be able to do this uh, podcast together. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to get us started with a couple of questions. Sarah and I are going to kind of go back and forth and asking questions and we might chime in at different uh, points, Mark. Uh, So we'll we'll try to keep, you know, keep the balls flying at you from different directions. Um, But first, I I wanted to ask you the question that we ask everybody on the RFF podcast, which is how did you personally get interested in energy and environmental issues and sort of what brought you to working on this topic? That's a great question. I never set out to be an environmental economist. I went to grad school and with a concentration in macro, macroeconomics. And so up until my third year, I really thought that that's the field that I would be going into. And and during my third year, I got an RA job with Professor Larry Goulder, who needed a student who had strong coding skills to work on his CGE model. And for for the non-economists among us, CGE model being computable, generalized equilibrium model. Correct. And so it was a a fit in terms of uh, my skill set rather than necessarily my interests. But as I started working uh, with Professor Goulder, and I continued working with him, I still work with him till this day, to be perfectly honest. But as I started working more with him in grad school and actually applying the model to look at, at the time, the impacts of the a cap-and-trade program, specifically the, the Waxman-Markey program, it just became really obvious to me that this was a far more widespread, interesting question than some of the smaller questions that were being asked um, in macroeconomics. And so like, it just became obvious to me that the question of climate policy was super important and is something that really just needed um, more work. And so I was happy to keep working on it and eventually found myself here at Resource of the Future continuing working in that and have just kind of, the ball's been rolling ever since. Yeah, fantastic. Well, we're glad you ended up taking that path and uh, we're going to take advantage of your expertise today and talk about you know that topic in particular, climate change and carbon pricing, uh, which is a key way or a key option for addressing climate change. And to get us rolling, um, 
you know, as most of our listeners will know, both with the CSIS podcast and the RFF podcast, there's been a slew of carbon pricing proposals that have been introduced recently in the U.S. Congress, both last year and this year. We don't have time to talk about all of them in detail. That's not what we're going to do today. But can you provide us kind of with a general sense of what are some of the major similarities and the major differences between the different uh, proposals that are out there? Yeah, in 2019, I've, I've called it the year of the carbon pricing proposal. There's been eight policies that have been introduced to Congress already. Seven of them have been carbon tax bills, and one of them has been a cap-and-trade bill. So that's the first kind of major similarity is that a majority of the bills have been carbon taxes. Now, within the carbon tax bills, they, they're generally similar, and they cover most, if not all, of, of the gases. They all want to have some type of border adjustment, but really the, the, the differences are in the, the price path, the initial price, and how that price changes over time. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's one bill that was introduced in July by Senator Coons and Senator Feinstein that starts at $15 a year and rises at $15 a year. So in 10 years, the carbon price is going to be $165. Which is high. Which is very high, especially compared to... Um, the bill that was introduced just a few weeks ago, the Market Choice Act by uh, Representative Fitzpatrick and three uh, co-sponsors, that policy starts at $35 and rises at 5% above inflation per year. So that in 10 years, the price is much smaller than the Coons-Feinstein uh, price. Mm-hmm. And Mark, you know, one of the things we do in the Energy 360 podcast series a lot is try and take a a view of different policy proposals for the different strategic lenses against which people evaluate them. And and one of them in this context is ambition, right? Everybody's interested in the ambition of a policy or how ambitious it is. What range of emissions reductions um, are would, would be achieved over the next couple of decades in these policies? So if we, if we measure ambition by will it, will the policy achieve the Paris targets or will not achieve the Paris targets. All of these policies that we've seen introduced this year, by, by our estimation, using um, the carbon pricing model we use here at RFF, all of those policies will achieve the 2025 uh, Paris Agreement of emissions 26 to 28% below 2005 levels. Mm-hmm. So even the, the least ambitious in terms of the price still achieves that policy. The major differences we see in terms of the ambition of these policies, if we want to kind of broaden the definition of ambition, is is we go out further in time. As we get to like 2030 or 2035, we really start to see bigger differences in these policies. But most of these policies, even the, the modest ones, come close to achieving or if not achieve 50% reductions below 2005 by 2035. And so I think that's a notable goal because that's that's a kind of the putting you on the path towards the deeper decarbonization. Now, of course, the the Senator Coons and Feinstein Act with the much higher price path that grows at such a such a high rate, that's going to have larger emissions reductions. We estimate by 2035 emissions will be 66 percent below 2005 levels in 2035. But still, these, all these policies are, are doing quite a bit to set us on the path towards decarbonization. Okay. And then sort of looking at the, the other side of the ledger, you guys, I guess, using the Golderhofstede D3 model 
estimated the economic impacts of the proposals. I would imagine you find a similarly wide range, but what, what are some of the insights you were able to garner there? Yeah, so economic impacts can mean a lot of things uh, to different people. Um, a lot of people kind of look at GDP impacts and other people want to look at maybe the impacts on, on households. Mm -hmm. So what we see is that, um, especially in terms of GDP, kind of the overall impacts, is we see relatively modest impacts, even for like the, the steeper policies. Of course, the steeper policies have higher impacts, um, but especially in the first five to 10 years of the policy, we really don't see super large differences. And the, the kind of the range that we see is, if you think about if the US economy was gonna grow 2% per year from 2020 to 2035, one of these carbon pricing proposals might reduce the annual growth rate from 2% to about 1.9 or 1.95%. So there is an impact, but overall over the, the 15 year impact, it's relatively modest in terms of the annual growth rate. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Mark. That's really useful. And um, maybe one one quick clarification question, and also I'm going to uh, give you the chance to plug a couple of your products. Uh, so the clarification question is, when we're talking about emissions reductions in the the model that you're using here, are we, are we just talking about carbon dioxide or are there other gases that are modeled? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, we're using the Goulder Hafstead E3 model, uh, which I've been working on since I was an RA in graduate school. Um, for those who are interested in learning more about the model, uh, we have a book that came out about almost two years ago now called Confronting the Climate Challenge, U.S. Policy Options. And that has a, it's a great kind of overview of, of what the model is and how it can be applied. Um, for those who are really interested in the details, uh, there is a 100-page technical appendix. <laughs> So, but uh, the people who don't have technical backgrounds can skip that. And I think it still um, gives a good overall highlight of, of what these kind of economic models can do and what they can and can't tell us. Yeah, cool. And the other product that I was uh, thinking about plugging for you and for RFF was this really great um, carbon pricing calculator that you have uh, put out there on the web. So this is kind of like in between, you don't have to have detailed model expertise to know how it works, but you can go there and sort of get quick answers to some of the questions that Sarah and I are asking you today. Yeah. And so following up on, on the model is what we've done is we've actually used that model and we've simulated a range of policies. So we, not only have we simulated using the model, the eight legislative proposals that have come out this year. We've also simulated a range of custom carbon pricing policies that you can choose, choose your own adventure, so to speak, to see what the kind of the emissions impacts and the economic impacts of the proposals would be. And to answer your first question, yes, we are only modeling energy related carbon dioxide emissions. So these are the carbon dioxide emissions that come from combusting fossil fuels. Right, great. So next question is, um... You know, you can answer this maybe specifically with regard to the bills that are out there, or you can talk about it in more general sense. So the question is about how to use the revenues that government collects from the application of a, of a carbon price. So there's lots of different ways that uh, the government could potentially use that revenue. Um, can you talk about some of those options and talk about their relative merits uh, in terms of, um, you know, both maybe political feasibility, but also economic efficiency or, or other, uh, you know, metrics that are of interest? Yeah. So revenue use is really, really important um, when it comes to understanding what the economic costs of the policy are going to be. 
it's it's less important for the the emissions reductions the price signal is really what's giving the the which is driving the emissions reductions but the use of the revenue is really going to be important for not only what the overall costs of a policy are going to be but also how those costs are going to be distributed across different parts of the economy and so just kind of going through what some of the approaches are and we actually have a great explainer on rff.org called carbon pricing 102 that you can check out to learn more about these but the first one is carbon dividends and so this is kind of like sending checks to households so to speak doesn't no one's actually going to get a check in the mail um, but it's that's that type of idea and this is this is used to kind of offset the the increased energy costs for households so this this policy tends to actually be um, very good for low-income households because if you give a constant uh, rebate check of say a thousand dollars a year to each household or person that means a lot to a household that's making fifteen thousand or even forty thousand dollars a year where it's going to mean less to households that are making two hundred thousand or two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year right so another option and this is what we talk a lot about in in the papers that I've done in the past and, and talking about in, in my book is that you have a tax swap and that's using the revenue to reduce other taxes and this these can have beneficial effects in that we're going to reduce the harmful impacts of those taxes. Um, so labor taxes, for example, may encourage individuals to work fewer hours. And so, or a payroll tax may encourage a employer to employ less employees because of the extra cost of, of the tax. And so if you reduce those taxes, you're you're reducing those disincentives and those can help cause some growth that could offset the cost of, of, of the carbon tax. Um, some of the other options are reducing individual income taxes or uh, inter reducing corporate income taxes. Now, the idea of using the carbon taxes to reduce corporate income taxes was obviously a lot more popular uh, two years ago before the introduction of the 2017 uh, tax bill that lowered the corporate taxes, um, but it's still something that we previously had spent a lot of time uh, talking about, and that tends to be a from our modeling at least, uh, shows to be a pretty efficient use, overall low cost of, of the policy. Now, of course, there's other, there's other uses of the revenues. Um, one thing that's kind of been starting to become more popular is the idea of green spending. Um, instead of a revenue-neutral policy that returns the revenues back to households through tax cuts or dividends, the idea is we take the revenue and we can spend it to invest to further reduce our emissions, uh, particularly in places where a pricing policy may not be as effective. Yeah, that's really helpful. And then when we think about the specific bills and their application of these different um, approaches to using revenue, kind of what do you see? Are there like major themes that emerge? Are some, are, are some approaches more um, popular than other approaches in the slew of bills that have been introduced recently? I think the dividends idea is, you know, it's at least included in four or five of the proposals, right? Yeah, I'd say that Right now, the dividend uh, proposal is probably the most popular, and that it's, we're seeing it in the most the most proposals. Um, the other one that we've seen is reducing payroll taxes. We saw that in two bills introduced this uh, July by Representative Rooney and Representative uh, Lipinski to use the revenues to uh, reduce payroll taxes, and those those revenues would actually go to the Social Security Trust Fund to offset those 
those lower uh, taxes so as to not further um, impact uh, the potential deficits that those that program might be facing in the next 15 or 20 years. And then the bill that was introduced two weeks ago, the Market Choice Act by Representative Fitzpatrick, is slightly different, and it actually follows the idea from the first Market Choice Act, which was introduced in 2018 by former Representative Curbelo, and that is to actually use the revenues to uh, reduce the federal gasoline tax. So that's and then using the revenues to uh, pay for the infrastructure, reimbursing the Highway Trust Fund, and so that's that's an interesting idea that we haven't really talked, we haven't really seen before last year, and that it helps reduce the impact on uh, drivers. So the carbon price would increase the price of gasoline by about one cent per every dollar of the tax. So forty dollar tax would increase the uh, price of gasoline by about forty cents, but to help offset that the policy would actually remove the federal gasoline tax that's about 18 cents. And so drivers, the price that drivers would face would only be about 22 cents as opposed to, to 40 cents. So that's an interesting idea as well. Great. Thanks, Mark. And so um, so you mentioned in your answer uh, a bill that was introduced two weeks ago. Just for listeners uh, to note, we're recording this on Friday, October 11th. So Mark's talking about sort of late September. Um, that this episode is probably going to air in a couple of weeks <laughs> from <laughs> October 11th. So so our time distortion field is um, in full effect. But um, but let me ask another question about the slew of bills before I turn it back over to Sarah to ask about maybe some political elements of. Um, of what's going on here. So the bills, as you mentioned a few moments ago, have different approaches when it comes to border adjustments, which is, you know, how to handle carbon intensive, um, maybe manufactured products that are imported into the United States that might not face a carbon tax in the jurisdiction where they are manufactured. So can you talk a little bit about those different approaches for uh, applying a border adjustment or a carbon tax to imported goods um, and what the range of approaches uh, looks like in the different bills that are on the table? So one of the major similarities in all the bills is the recognition that we need to put a border adjustment to keep our domestic our domestic industries competitive, whether that's um, putting a, a fee on imports of, of, of goods or whether that's uh, putting uh, rebating the fee on exports. So both of those will help the US industries remain competitive in a world where other countries aren't putting it aren't pricing carbon the same way we are. So they all have this similarity. They have, there's some differences, of course, in, in how they go about doing this. Um, some of those differences are in exactly what industries are covered or what products are covered. Some of them, some of the proposals specifically say that it only applies to sectors with a certain greenhouse gas intensity and a certain trade intensity. So, for example, one of the bills, um, you have to have a, you have to have five percent or higher greenhouse gas intensity. So, the greenhouse gas, um, as a fraction of your output, has to be greater than five percent, and you have to be trade intensity of at least fifteen percent. So, that's kind of a measure of the competition you you face. Right, and trade intensive meaning like the at least fifteen percent of the whatever the good is is traded internationally. Is that what that means? Approximately, yes. It, mm-hmm. Sometimes it changes by policy is how they exactly define it. 
So what a lot of these bills do is they actually put in place um, mechanisms such a border adjustment will take place. So they create authority for the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol to come up with the rules for how these would would these border adjustments would take place for commerce to come up with these rules for how to take these take place. I think that's going to be important because, as I mentioned, these things are going to be really difficult um, uh, to put in place, specifically because you need to know the exact amount of fuel intensity for each good from each region to appropriately put the price in place and do it in a way that doesn't single out one country over another. Yeah, Mark, you know, closely related to a lot of these design elements that we've been talking about, you know, use of revenue and, and thinking about border, you know, border adjustments is the political considerations that uh, Daniel mentioned I was going to bring up. I mean, I think one of the interesting things for me is that we have more policies to judge now and to sort of, you know, start thinking about. Um, and uh, and, I, and I'm just curious about your take on whether or not you think any of the proposals we've seen so far uh, are more politically viable than any of the others and what we're learning about the sort of political viability of these different proposals based on the reaction we've seen when they come out. So that's obviously a difficult question for me as an economist <laughs> to to answer. Um, I try to keep the politics to the politicians and I stick to the to the economics. I think one thing that's going to be important is is having the border adjustments. I, I don't think we will see a politically viable uh, carbon price that doesn't have border adjustments. Manufacturing industries will not come to the table in any way, shape or form unless they, they know that there's going to be some type of border adjustments. I think some of these policies um, have cover some gases or have some exemptions. Um, it might be that's an open question. I think as to whether or not those exemptions are are necessary to to move the bill past. If the the political heft or the um, political uh, power behind some of those uh, those potential exemptions, for example, maybe whether farm emissions are exempted or not. So if the agricultural lobby is great enough to make sure that the only way we get a carbon price is if they're exempt, I don't know the answer to that question or not. And what about the revenue use dimension of it? Do you think that that's going to be as politically like salient a factor as, you know, at least in my world, a lot of people are putting a lot onto that revenue use side of the equation with the proposal, or at least the belief that a, um, a, a dividend of sorts makes this more saleable? I think really that's the perfect question is I think that's the, the revenue is going to be the grease, which is going to get this through through Congress. And I'm, I'm not sure we're going to see uh, kind of a pure revenue approach um, in terms of all the revenue is going to go to dividends or all the revenues are going to go to uh, payroll taxes, tax cuts. I think what you'll see is that there'll be some negotiations. This is going to be one of the places where people are going to be able to find common ground. And what my guess is, is that a politically viable proposal will have elements of some of these po policies we've seen in terms of the revenue use. So some of them will have, or so it will have some dividends, maybe restricted only to low-income households, may have some tax cuts that can help off the, the more of the working class, uh, middle class, and maybe some revenue use for green spending um, to appease uh, the progressive sides who really see that as the way to further um, further reductions. 
Yeah, and so maybe one more question on political viability is sort of the relationship between these kinds of proposals and carbon pricing proposals and other policy proposals like um, like clean energy standard or uh, maybe some tax incentives and other things. What do you think are some of the, the merits of those other pathways relative to a carbon pricing proposal, whether it's on the economics or the political side of the equation? Um, and, and are there areas, maybe as a follow-up to that, are there areas where you hear people kind of talking about policies as, um, as being mutually exclusive where you actually could see some complementarity? So I think the biggest problem with uh, a carbon tax today is that it's a tax and that it's a tax that's very visible. And uh, back in the Wexman Markey days, the cap and trade program was was labeled a cap and tax. And so I think either type of, of program, uh, carbon tax or a, a cap and trade program, are going to suffer from the fact that the, the price is very visible and it's very salient. And we've seen... Um, We've seen in France with the uh, the yellow vest movement that was started when the price of gasoline was going up caused by a carbon price in Ecuador. Uh, just this last week, there's been strikes and protests uh, from the removal of fuel subsidies where the price of gasoline has spiked quite a bit. Mm -hmm. I think that is going to be the biggest problem is that it's for for what we actually as economists see as a as a benefit of the policy is that it's very salient and it's very easy to see. Uh, you see this in Canada. Canada, um, the federal government has imposed a a carbon tax on the provinces who refuse to adopt their own carbon uh, policy, and the the conservative governments are are using these these higher prices um, as part of their uh, their campaigns to potentially remove those those carbon prices if they come into power. Mm -hmm. And so, I think some of the other advan the advantages of some of the other proposals. Is that while maybe on a cost per ton basis they're higher, in, in in economic speak they're they're less efficient in that the the cost per ton is is higher. They're they're more implicit. It's harder for consumers to really see that that's what's driving up the price. And so I think that's that's um, the salience is, is going to be really important and is actually it's a benefit from the economic side for carbon pricing, but maybe it's a um, Maybe that makes it politically difficult as well. Where clean energy standard, I think, is a really interesting uh, policy proposal in that uh, we have research that shows that they don't necessarily have to be extremely inefficient relative to a carbon price in reducing emissions from the power sector. And so I think the idea is if we want to just start with the power sector, start with the low-hanging fruit, I think that's that could be a start. Um, and maybe that's something that's more politically viable is going sector by sector. Mm -hmm. And uh, a clean, if a clean energy standard is, is more politically viable than a carbon price, you know, I think the economics shows that there's not a huge trade-off there. Thanks, Mark. Sarah, before we go to our last question, the top of the stack, I want to put you on the hot seat uh, and, and see if you <laughs> are interested in answering your own question, which is sort of what do you see as the relative merits of these different approaches? And because I because I know you've thought about this a, a bit and you've written about it as well. Yeah, I, um, I've been a little dismayed. I, I can't quite tell if it's um, 
I'm always being careful to be analytical and not just getting older. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm a little dismayed at how much there is talk about perfect policy design again. Um, and I, I really appreciate the work of trying to think through the relative efficiency of different policies and how effective they can be. And I, I just think that's that's really, really important work. However, I don't see the political opening for carbon pricing as being something that's going to naturally land on uh, anyone's lap. And so I think what I've noticed is there's a lot of focus on how, you know, a carbon price is relatively ascendant relative to the idea of a, car a cap and trade program, or even, you know, as we're seeing sort of this um, pendulum effect in U.S. regulatory policy, you know, there's, there's a little bit of you know, skepticism about regulatory mechanisms being able to deliver emissions reductions. And so all of this is sort of making the promise of a potential economy-wide carbon price seem more attractive. And I just, you know, for all of the folks that are sort of thinking about and advocating, whether it's, you know, on a, on a sort of a corporate level or an institutional level for those kinds of policies, I think it's actually going to be quite a big lift. And so I think it'd take a lot of work to get there on the on the political side of the of, of delivering on these policies. Um, and I think all the insights that you know RFF and others provide to that conversation are extremely valuable. I just think that we have to stop sort of pretending like there's going to be a magical window that's going to open and this is going to all of a sudden be there. I think people are going to have to really make that window of opportunity. I tend to agree with Mark that things that um, states already find quite familiar. Um, broadly might be effective. And so there's a lot of things um, like a clean energy standard or like um, certain tax incentives um, that I think, you know, could potentially be near-term things we could do if we just would sort of accept their imperfections from a, a, a range of different issues and sort of, you know, be kind of just get get on with it if, if we can make them happen. So, so anyway, I, I can see a lot of policy um, policies that would be, you know, effective, but I just sort of worry that we're getting back into this time where we think about, you know, optimal policy design in a definitely suboptimal political environment. So um, <laughs> I, I worry about balancing that ledger a little bit. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good sort of, um, you know, realistic point to end on, I think, in our substantive <laughs> conversation. Um, so, so now let's go to our last question, the top of the stack question, which I'll ask to both Mark and Sarah. Sarah, I'll ask you to go first. Uh, and then Mark, so um, so this question is, what is on the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack? So what have you read or watched or heard lately that you think is really cool and that you'd recommend to our listeners? Sarah, uh, what's on the top of your stack? Yeah, I think the book that I, I tend to recommend, even though I read it once a while ago, and I'm sort of rereading it in parts is The Wizard and the Prophet um, by Charles Mann. Um, I really like it because it forces me to take a historical look at the tension between um, sort of, you know, uh, environmental policymakers and, and, and advocates who sort of think about it from a, you know, how do you engage with the environment from a, a social and sort of practical level and a regulatory and policy level, and then the scientific world, right, who thinks about, you know, how do you um, find engineering and technological solutions to some of our environmental challenges. And I think it, I like it because we tend to think about our time today as being particularly divisive. I like to think about the tension between sort of the advocacy and the scientific community um, as being, you know, a potentially uh, a positive force if we can only try and figure out how to direct it in that way. And so it's a really great uh, read for folks who are interested in that kind of dynamic. 
Yeah, cool. I've heard so much good things about that book, and I still haven't read it, so I'll have to pick that up soon. I'll let you uh, borrow it. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. Uh, Mark, how about you? What uh, What are you uh, looking at these days? Well, as always, I have a lot of reports uh, on my desk, usually <laughs> that I need to read for the review for a journal. So um, I w- obviously won't recommend any of those, but that's <laughs> definitely the, the top of my stack. <laughs> So you're you're the dreaded reviewer number two, huh? Uh, sometimes, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but in terms of uh, carbon pricing proposals, I think Give Metcalf's book, "Putting a Price on Carbon," um, is 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 a great read, and it's it's not incredibly technical, and I think it it can reach a, a an audience to kind of show why economists really think that this is the policy that um, can be. As as I as I said um, in response to this new IMF report that just came out, the that I think this book will demonstrate why we think that carbon pricing is the most effective tool for reducing carbon dioxide emissions from fossil fuels. Yeah, that's a great recommendation. And we can refer listeners to uh, to previous episode of Resources Radio, where we interviewed Gib about his book. Um, and he, uh, yeah, really explained it very clearly. And it's yeah, a, I second that. It's a great book. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, um, I will close this out then, I guess, and uh, say thanks uh, to Mark for joining us and uh, and to Sarah and CSIS uh, for helping us uh, put together this joint podcast. It's been really great. Yeah, thanks, Mark. And, and thanks, Daniel. It's been a real pleasure for Energy 360 to be able to join with you guys. You do a great job, uh, not only in your podcast, but uh, Mark, your work is really, really exceptional. And we're looking forward to using the carbon pricing tool and some of the other resources that you're putting out there. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And thank you, Daniel, for having me on. You've been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.